0: All right, all right, all right. Salt Company. Hey, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Wow. Oh, to be here on a Thursday night. How about it? Come on now. What's up, guys? So pumped that you are here at Salt Company. It is an honor to be with you guys. And uh, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Austin. What a joy. Hey, we're starting a new series tonight. Kind of stoked. We're going through the book of Isaiah. Yes. Hey, Isaiah. Guys, I don't know if you have read this or not, heard anything about Isaiah. It's dense, it's long, but it's got a lot of sweet things to, to say to us, um, and I'm just excited to unpack it with you guys starting right now, but before we get into it, wanted to... Give you guys a nice blast from the past fourth grade band concert. Have that image in your head. Have you ever been to a fourth grade band concert? Uh, I was at one once. Yes, I was once in fourth grade and participated in my fourth grade band concert. I was one of, I believe it was, three people who were percussionists from Harriet Bishop Elementary School. Come on, go Hornets. Yeah, Harriet Bishop. Man, we had a great time, but we had a fourth grade band concert, right? And I started to think back to what my parents must have been thinking coming to this fourth grade band concert. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but not that many pleasant sounds happening at a fourth grade band concert, especially if there is a highlighted song, a highlighted piece of three fourth graders playing on the bells, the glockenspiel, yes, yes. These, this is a piercing instrument. Even if you play the right note, it is very piercing. But here's ha- actually what happened. This is a, a kind of like a trio concert. And they wanted to highlight this bell's performance playing the Star-Spangled Banner. And so I get up there, and I'm in the middle, and I see Aaron on my left and Natalie on my right. Those are the actual names. Of, we, were, we were tight. I'm telling you, we were tight. The percussionists from Harriet Bishop. And I remember, for whatever reason, I thought I had put in plenty of time to practice, but I get up there... In front of all these parents, and I just absolutely forgot how to play the Star Spangled Banner on bells. So now I'm just sitting in the middle of these two, and they're killing it, quite honestly. But I'm ruining the whole thing for them, because I'm just kind of like trying to fake go along with it and just like peek at what they're playing and then play it right after him. And it was bad. I just remember feeling like I had lost so much of my dignity as a fourth grader because I had forgot how to play the Star Spangled Banner. Forgetting things, right? Kind of sucks. I don't know if you've forgotten something maybe recently. Maybe it's, man, you forgot to do a homework assignment. It was a big, pun- big percentage of your grade. That's going to come at a cost, right? Maybe you forgot a friend's birthday, family member's birthday. That kind of hurts, okay? Maybe you forgot, like me, actually just found out. I forgot to put my tabs on my car. So Minneapolis uh, police Helped me out to discover that I didn't put the new tabs on. It comes with a cost, right? Forgetting stuff comes with a cost. Question for you. Have you ever thought about what it means to forget about God? Not necessarily like, did you just forget that he exists? But have you forgotten who he is? Have you forgotten about his character, what he's all about? Have you forgotten what he's done throughout history? Have you forgotten about his grace? Maybe have you known he's there, but decided to kind of push him off and put something else in his place, a substitute. There's a word for this, and we call it idolatry. You may be familiar with it, but it is removing God from the center, removing God from where he should be, and putting someone, something else in his place. And all of us, I mean, all of us in every corner of the world are guilty of idolatry, of actually substituting the true creator God and putting something else in his place. It's anything that we love, anything that we would pursue in the place of God and forgetting him. It could be an image made out of wood or clay or metal, but it certainly doesn't have to be. It could be a friendship. It could be a substance. It could be a job, a grade, an activity, but it's a substitute God. If you were to look at just the pattern of your life and think about words that maybe we ought to ascribe to God, worship, follow, love, Trust, and you're doing those things to something other than God, trusting ultimately in, loving ultimately something that isn't him. That's, that's idolatry. Have you forgotten about God and exchanged him for something else? That's a big question that we should answer going into the book of Isaiah, because right away in chapter 1, we're introduced with a man named Isaiah, you could have guessed that one probably. He's a man sent to Israel, okay, on a mission. Now, Israel was the people chosen by God to be his people, to display his, gro- his glory to the rest of the world. God would actually guide this people. He would deliver this people from evil, from danger, and he would... Say he's never going to leave them and eventually give them this promised land, okay? And when we enter the story here in Isaiah, we are actually, Israel is in their promised land. And at the time of the message that Isaiah is going to deliver, they've split into two kingdoms a northern and a southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And they were this like little nation, but they were caught in between wars with these. Huge world superpowers, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. So there's this little nation, God's people, and they're caught in this crazy circumstance between world superpowers, and Isaiah is sent on a mission from God, a terrible job. You would not want this job that Isaiah had. He's the TA that always has to talk about assigning the homework. Like Nobody wants to hear this guy talk. It's a tough job. He's got to tell the rulers of Israel that there is a cost to their idolatry. Because Israel was this people who, though God was theirs, and he would constantly deliver them, be with them, they would... Turn their face and put something else as a substitute. And so Isaiah starts in chapter 1. If you guys want to flip there with me, I'm going to read just some of these verses from the very first chapter of Isaiah's message to Israel, to their leaders saying, hey, there is a price to be paid for your idolatry. This is verse 2 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 1. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear O oh, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring and evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. They've forgotten God. They've forgotten God and they are sick. They're going to face the consequences. Guys, if you were to read the next 10 chapters of Isaiah, here's what you'd see. You'd see that... Israel would experience this judgment for their idolatry because God would actually have nations come and invade and dominate their place, their people. Since the people wanted a life absent of God, that's actually what they would get. This is really what judgment is. It's getting what you want. And so since Israel said, hey, God, we don't want you, God says, okay, that's what you're going to get. If you want a life without God, ultimately, you're wanting a life without hope. That's what we see in these first 10 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Israel, as they know it, would be totally chopped down. They would be like a tree with an axe laid to the base of it. The tree falling and all that's left would just be a scorched stump because there's a cost that came with their idolatry. And so Judah and Jerusalem would be no more than a stump, a wasteland without hope, or so we think. Because actually in chapter 11, it takes a turn. Okay, chapter 11. Turn there with me right now if you've got your Bibles open. I want you to see this. We've got a picture of Israel as a tree that an axe has been laid to it and the tree has fallen down only to be left a stump. But here's where we pick up in Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, from the stump will grow a shoot and produce fruit. From a humble place of a stump that was totally cut off, From life, from a humble place, the Savior of the world would come. Guys, Isaiah here is talking about Jesus. This is really exciting because it's a stump. It's dead. But from it, a shoot is going to rise up. It mentions the name Jesse because Jesus would actually come from the lineage of a man named Jesse. Fun fact about why that's cool Because they could have used a bunch of different names that were actually way more impressive than the name of Jesse. They could have used the name of King David as an example. Famous dude. But they used the name Jesse, humble guy, just to hammer home the point that hope would come from something humble. God wanted his people to know that though they would experience great desolation and judgment, He would use them to bring forth life. From the very place of death, the Messiah, the Savior, would come. Okay, look again. This is verse 10 of chapter 11. I want you to see this. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal to the peoples, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus came as the Messiah from the line of Jesse, the people of Israel, so that he would be the Savior of the people of Israel and for the nations. Guys, that's us. For the nations in that day, that's how it starts. It's referring to the day when Jesus will actually fully rule over all things, fully rule over his creation and bring full restoration and healing to the world. There's going to be peace. He's a signal for the whole world, inviting people from every nation, every language, to look upon him and believe the faithfulness of God. That's what chapter 11 is all about. Okay? It's about when they had forgotten God. God did not forget about them. This is the good news that all of Scripture points to. Jesus Christ came to save Sinners. Jesus Christ came to save those that had idols in their life. Those are the people that he came for. Israel looked as if they were too far gone, chopped down like a dead stump, and yet God decided to bring life from them. They were a stump, dead, yet God brought life. So you, my friend, are not too far gone. Hope comes from someplace humble. God made a way for you to be brought back into his family, and anybody can get on this, get in on this. Though you have forgotten God, God did not forget about you. This made me think of, like, being in Target as a kid, and, you know, you're following your parents around. Maybe they're grocery shopping or something. But Target's a cool place, so you're trying to, like, go check out the toys or something, you know? So you veer off the path a little bit and trying to get a little look at the Legos, of course. So you leave your parents, right? Your, your eyes are just on the toys. I got to get there, man. But then before you know it, you sort of realize, hey, I actually don't know where my parents went. Did, any, did this only happen to me? This had to have happened to somebody else in here. Where you're running out and you're like checking out the Legos, but then you look behind and you're like, mom, check it. You, like, don't know where they went. You're like, shoot, what am I going to do? So then you're like, maybe I got to go just, like, try and search for them. But that's definitely not helping very much. And so you actually go to, like, where the clothes are at. You think maybe mom's buying clothes or something. And then uh, you just get scared, right? So you climb. Anybody do this? You hide yourself in the, like, rack of clothes? <laughs> why, do, why do we do that? <laughs> doesn't help at all. They're not going to find you, man. Oh, man. But well, we did it anyway, right? You're hiding in those clothes. And then you start to think, like, bro, I think mom, I think mom and dad probably went home already. I, maybe they came here to leave me here altogether. Like, maybe this was on purpose. No, but then uh, you see a hand grab the coat, right? Peel it out. They saw your shoes, the light-up shoes or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they saw the light-up shoes, And then they see, hey, let's, come on, let's keep shopping, right? You grab the hand, everything's as it should be. They didn't forget about you, right? They didn't forget about you. Though you have forgotten God, he did not forget about you. There's a way home. He is your salvation. So would you look to him, depend on him, enjoy life attached to his arm, This is the good news. And honestly, guys, this is what chapter 12 is all about, right? We went 1 through 10, disaster, 11, hope in Jesus. Now chapter 12 is all about a song of thankfulness. I actually want to read all of chapter 12. It's only only four verses, and it's awesome. Let's read chapter 12 together right here. You will say in that day... I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Guys, here's what I think this text has for us tonight. If chapter 12 is a song of thankfulness, then I think this text has three melodies for us to sing right now. Three melodies for us to sing. We'll start with number one. How about melody number one? God is my salvation. Verse one and two. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You guys see how personal that is? God is my salvation. Maybe the song that you need to sing tonight is one of personal redemption. This looks like seeing the work of Jesus and not letting it just be a a story primarily for other people, a personal story of redemption. It's seeing the life of Jesus and believing that he's called you to live like him. It's seeing the miraculous works of Jesus and believing that he wants to heal broken parts of your life. It's seeing the spilled blood of Jesus and believing that it paid the debt of your sin. It's seeing the resurrection of Jesus and believing that that means resurrection for you too. It is deeply personal. When God becomes your salvation, he becomes something much more dear to you than a far off tale, but it becomes your story. Man, this made me think of the difference between reading, like, a novel for, like, a sixth grade English class versus the summer after your senior year of college. I was just, like, skimming The Hobbit. I don't know virtually anything about The Hobbit except for (laughs) Bilbo Baggins. I just, like, look at the names, right? You just, like, skim the pages. Oh, Bilbo. All right. Yeah? Okay. I don't know any plot line or anything I'm just looking at the character names, but now, guys, I'm honestly impressing myself. I'm starting to read for enjoyment now. It's a story that I enjoy. I just started reading some, the Space Trilogy, it's epic. But I'm, in, I'm actually like absorbing, paying attention to the details, seeing myself in the page, looking at like character traits and like wanting to like hold it up almost like a mirror. This is my story, right? That's what it's like when this when the work of Jesus actually becomes my salvation, it becomes deeply personal, and you get lost in it. So maybe your song is one of personal redemption. Here's something that I think might help a little bit. What if we started viewing our song of personal redemption kind of like a country song? Here's what I mean. I don't, personally, I'm not a huge fan of country music. You can hate on me. It's fine. But here's what I do know. Country songs are about storytelling, and their choruses are so catchy, so catchy, it'll get stuck in your head in your head easier than a piece of bubble gum in an afro. It will get stuck in your head like nobody's business. It is incredibly catchy, and it's all about telling a story. Okay, your salvation story is like a country song. Why? Because it is one big story. And the chorus hits it home that it's all God's grace to you. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That is grace. Something that you don't deserve. You deserved judgment. You deserved anger against your sin. But God turned his anger away from you upon Christ and now gives comfort to you instead. That's grace. And that's the chorus of the salvation song. So like any good country song, you can listen to this. You can sing this on a beautiful Minnesota summer day with the windows rolled down to say, God is good to me. But you can also sing this in January or March with the windows rolled all the way up to remind you (laughs) that there is hope in the Minnesota summer to come. Right? You can sing this one. When the days are good, you can see this one when it's easy to see God's grace to you. But you can also sing this when the days get tough and you need a reminder that God has, in fact, and will, in fact, be good to you going forward. Has God become your salvation? Is it personal yet? Maybe the song you need to sing tonight is just one of personal Redemption, But let's look at the melody number two. Fill the earth with praise. Let's look at verse four together. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. If melody number one is a song of personal redemption, then maybe, maybe you've got that one down. And melody number two is less about what you're saying and more about who you're singing with. Anybody can get in on this, and God will make his name known throughout all the earth. This is not just an American thing. This is not just a thing for Israel. In fact, this is one of the promises that God fulfills in Jesus. Remember from chapter 11 that Isaiah said, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, the nations shall inquire. Jesus is a signal for the peoples in every part of the world to look and believe and sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. So we want to make it known in all the earth. So we're going to sing a song of invitation. Okay, I want you to see the the cause and effect here. Do You notice how verse 1 and 2, deeply personal, and then boom, Verse 4 is a song of invitation. You're deeply moved, and then you are sent to go and tell and sing so that his praise would fill all the earth. The song of personal redemption will never just stop there because the good news of Jesus came to you on its way to somebody else. It's a song of invitation. An invitation to see the grace of God and get in on it. Okay, and I wonder if it would help us if we saw this song. Kind of like a jazz classic. It's beautifully unexpected and improvisational. Right, there's one message. There's one main line, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came He lived, he died, and he rose to save sinners, to welcome him in. But the contextualization, the way that you actually deliver this message to the person sitting in front of you is like that sweet improvisational keys player that adds exactly what they need to perfectly fit the time and the place. It's a beautiful tune, but you might actually end up playing it differently every single time? What if we saw evangelism like this? What would this look like if we started singing this melody on our campus? What would it look like to share the good news with people around you? I just want to, like, fill you guys with faith that God uses ordinary people like us with imperfect gospel presentations to flip places like Minneapolis upside down. That Jesus would actually be the most famous name in this city because of us in this room. Unimpressive, pretty ordinary people just pumped about the grace of God and willing to sing about him. You are the way that this is going to happen. One conversation at a time. So maybe it's time to start sharing the gospel with your friends the same way that you share your favorite song with them. You don't need to blast it on a megaphone around the city, but you need to start adding this to every playlist you can. Cue this every time you go in the car. You're trying to talk about Jesus just the way you talk about your favorite sports team. It's just about intentionality. You don't need to blast it on the speakers, but you just start talking about what you love. That's what we do naturally, isn't it? You talk about the things you love. You share the things you love. You sing of what you love. So maybe the song for you is to sing the one of invitation to God's grace so that the earth would be filled with his praise. Let's look at melody number three. In that day, in that day, this is a motif throughout chapter 12, and it's a hope beyond right now. And, guys, I'm not really sure what you're walking into the room with, but I know that there are some people that are just sitting in the chair, not feeling the greatest, kind of dogging getting through each day. I don't know if it's family stuff. I don't know if it's school, work stressors, nerves about the upcoming summer or the upcoming school years, health issues, or just fatigue. Maybe sin feels heavy, pain feels ever-present, and it's just hard to get through each day. And you're sitting there asking, Austin, how is it possible to sing a song of joy and praise in the midst of all this junk. Okay, maybe a thing that you need to hear tonight is that there is hope beyond today. Friend, I am very, very glad to be able to share with you that there is, in fact, a day when the pain will be gone, the sin will be gone, the tears will be gone. And the very thing that will fill the earth is the tangible presence of a good God. That's going to happen one day, and it's going to be wonderful. Look again at the second half of verse 4 with me. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Man, that's what we're going to be singing about one day. God is here with us, fully, physically, uninhibited. The full, tangible presence of a good God in his redeemed world. That's hope beyond today. There's somebody that kept coming to my mind when I was thinking about the hope of a future day. It's my grandpa. His name is Alan James Miller. We share a middle name, and we also share the hope of Christ. He was a farmer, born and raised in the same house that he and his wife would later raise their kids in, including my dad. He worked hard on the farm, and he would talk to Jesus as he milked the cows. So sweet. He had Parkinson's, which actually would, over the course of his lifetime, wear away at his body and at his mind. It would make life full of pain and hurt, especially in the later years of his, of his life. And his wife, my grandma Blanche, she actually would have a number of heart surgeries and complications with her life. Uh, it just made stuff kind of challenging, once again, especially in the later years. Just a lot of hurt and a lot of pain physically and mentally. But this man, Alan, he lived with a joy that made everybody around him just wonder how. How does this guy, in the midst of such pain and a mind that's decaying, a body that's decaying, how does somebody like that have joy? It was a hope beyond today. You see, my grandpa, he actually read Isaiah. He had his Bible with him at his senior living place, and it was a book that he had marked up in his Bible. He highlighted the verses that spoke of a future promise. He knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises. He knew that one day the pain would be gone, He knew that one day he would experience the full presence of God, and it would only be if he would hold on to the hope of Jesus. My grandpa passed away last year, but he sang the song of Isaiah 12 until his very last days. He sang the personal redemption song, knowing that Jesus had paid his debt with his blood that he was invited personally to follow Jesus. He sang the song of invitation. Guys, there were stories of my grandpa driving to the pastor's house, picking up the pastor, and driving to his buddy's house and saying, hey, share the gospel with them. They need to hear it. Beast. He sang the song of a future hope until his last days, and now he's singing it. to to Jesus himself in the chorus of heaven. And if it were him on this stage, he would invite you to start singing with him. Hold on to the hope of that day. Soul Company, I'm just wondering who we would become if we sang this song to the end of our days. What kind of people would we be Wouldn't we become a people filled with the belief that God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him? Because singing these songs makes much of a good God, and that is worthy of our every breath. There's three melodies that we can sing tonight, but I want you to know something really special That even when you can't sing, when it gets really hard to sing those three songs, Jesus spoke three words over you. It is finished. He has secured the hope for you. The debt has been paid. The promises fulfilled in him. He is the heartbeat of Isaiah chapter 12. Look to him and find comfort. Look to him and find hope. Look to him and find peace. Let's pray to that end. God, give us eyes to see you. Give us hearts to love you. Give us mouths to sing these three songs for the rest of our days, Lord. Thank you for not forgetting us. We are so like Israel and putting substitutes in your place. But God, even when we forget you and we shove you to the side, you are so faithful to us. You never left us. God, I ask that you would raise up people from this very room to bring your good news to the ends of the earth. Would you fill the earth with with your praise God and would it start in this room right now be made much of in our hearts Lord and I pray that these songs that we are going to sing would be a sweet sound to your ear God fill this room with praise we love you we're thankful for what you've done for us pray this in Jesus name Amen